Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? G'day and welcome to episode six of the Howie Games. So far on this humble little podcast, we've been lucky enough to feature some pretty big names in sport. Adam Gilchrist, Danny Green, Brendan Favola, Darren Sammy, the great West Indian, and Dennis Cometti. If you haven't heard some of those episodes, please go back, take a listen if you have time. Subscribe to us on iTunes, even give us a rating because it helps our cause. Today, a gentleman whose name you may not have heard, but whose story I really, really hope you have the time to hear. Jack Jones was born in 1924 in Ascot Bar, which is a suburb in Melbourne. He played in seven VFL Grand Finals. Seven, if you don't mind. But before he played footy, Jack went to war with the 24th Infantry Battalion in Papua New Guinea. I first met Jack on Anzac Day 11 years ago. He's a tall, striking man, piercing blue eyes, sharp as a whip, a fellow that people congregate around. Everybody wants to have a chat with Jack. If Jack views you as a mate, well, it's something you should treasure. I know, I certainly do. Here's Jack Jones, a great Australian. Oh, my Jaja, tell me why won't they open up their eyes? They could help out if they try, try, try. If they would try, try, try. Well, the good news is, Jack, we're recording. So that's a a step in the right direction. Firstly, Jack, welcome to what I call the Howie Games. It's a great honour to sit here and have a chat with you. How are you going? Good, thanks. Thank you for inviting me, Mark. Oh, it's great to have you here. We're, we're sitting here in, in Channel 10 at the moment, but we were, I went and picked you up at your place in Canterbury slash Camberwell. Beautiful house that you bought how long ago? Uh, 46 years ago. 46 years ago. We're having a chat in the car. Tell the people uh, that are listening to the Howie Games, what did it cost you, Jack? Uh, $17,000. $17,000 Australian dollars, which is sort of ten or 12000 US dollars, and I guess now it's worth, I don't know. Oh, one, two, three, four, one point four, two, three, four, five, six, I don't know. Maybe 1.6. I'll million. never know because <laughs> <laughs> I've got to stay it until I die. They're not trying to kick you out of it, are they? That'd yeah, no, 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 no. It's extraordinary, isn't it? You bought that house, you know, 40 or 50 years ago and you were telling me you're a, you're a butcher at the time? Yeah, that's right. So what was a butcher earning back in Melbourne in the 1950s to buy a $17,000 house? Oh, around about... Uh, $30. $30. Oh, sorry, £30. £30. $60. $60. And so you just tuck away your mortgage, make your payment each. Did it take you long to pay off a $17,000? No, not very long because the the wages, $30 was very good wages actually. Which is extraordinary because I guess the the median house price in Melbourne, for those that don't know, it might be eight nine hundred thousand dollars and you you old dog snaffled yours for 17 grand yeah i was lucky i bought in the right area at the right time yeah right now let's jack we're gonna go way back um i had the pleasure of meeting you uh on anzac day maybe seven or eight years ago for channel 10 yeah that'd be right we sat down together and um we see each other around at the footy um you're a great essendon man in this part of the world but I, i guess you you always fascinated me jack because well for a start you're 91 that's right, 91. We'll, we'll get on to how you look so bloody good as a 91-year-old a bit later. But for those, I don't know. You might reckon I look all right, well, but you I, want to see me in the morning. <laughs> if I look like you at 91, Jack, I'll be very happy with the life. What's your first? What's the first memories, Jack? You were born in 1924. In, yeah, that's right. In yeah. Melbourne, what are you, what are your first memories as a young person? What's the first thing you can remember? Uh, Dick Reynolds probably played for Essendon. Right, so this, this is the footy club is a massive part of your life. So you went along as a young bloke. Did your dad take you to the footy the first time? Yes, he did. And uh, Dick Reynolds played his first game in 1933, which is a long time ago. I was about just on eight and a half, put it that way. And uh, he was a great idol of everybody that lived in, in Essendon District, which yep. I was born in Ascot Vale, that's Essendon District. And... Uh, he was like what Bradman was to the whole of Australia. Was he? Bradman was on a, you know, in, because of the Depression. Yep. Nobody had that many interests. There's only about five million in Australia at the time. And uh, Dick Reynolds was similar to uh, Bradman only in the Essendon area, naturally. So he, he was this great hope for the Essendon Football well, Club. Well, that's right. You know, they, there, wasn't a, there wasn't a great deal of other sport played in those days, no soccer or anything like that or... Or uh, what else? Hockey, you know. It was mainly football. We used to get great crowds at the uh, the grand finals. Like I can remember the nineteen forty nine grand final. Uh, there was ninety five thousand there officially. Yep. 
and we only used to get two tickets to get into the ground. Right. And uh, I gave one to my mother and one to my wife, <laughs> and I said, I'll pay to get in. You were playing in this grand yeah, final. Yeah, I was playing in the you grand final. You had to pay final. to get in the door. Yeah, oh, well, because I gave me tickets away. I got I got a ticket to get in. So one of the two tickets included you and you were playing. Yeah, right. that's right. <laughs> right. And uh, I got to the gate at the, the, the ground and uh, it was locked. Every gate was locked bar two. At the, the MCG? Player, at the MCG, the player's gate and also the MCG where you, you'll never get into the MCG because uh, unless you've got a ticket, I can remember Wally Grout, the great Australian wicketkeeper. Yep. He, he came without his ticket like me one day and he jumped the turnstiles to get in. So what did you do? The, the 19... no, I, I waited there and, and a, a Carlton, we were playing Carlton at the time and uh, Chuck Howell, uh, the opposing ruckman, came along and he said, how you going, Jack? Because we all knew one another more so probably in those days. Yep. Because we used to have after-match drinks and sandwiches and everything like that and... Uh, he said, you look worried. I said, yeah, I left my ticket at home. <laughs> I told a fib, you know, and uh, at any rate, uh, he don't worry about it, Jack, I'll get you in. So he uh, he walked to the gate, gave his ticket to the, the gatekeeper and uh, he said, oh, by the way, I've never seen that bloke behind me in my life. <laughs> you which, were... you, which you would say, the opposition ruckman. <laughs> anyway, he walked about two paces and we used to have Gladstone bags in those days, leather Gladstone bags, taking our gear to the football. And he added above his shoulder, it was that tight packed, and he said, I'll go around to your rooms and, and uh, tell them that you, you've left your ticket at home <laughs> and, uh, and I'll bring a ticket round for you to get in. So that happened and uh, the CEO went mad at me for giving my ticket away. <laughs> but you got Get in. in the room and got, got changed and ran out onto the ground and uh, they're all around the boundary line, all the people around the boundary line because... In 1949 grand final, they broke the gates down at the Ponsford's end of the MCG and about 10,000 people got in it, into the ground for nothing. So how many do you reckon was in there? Well, I said probably... Oh, there was 95 officially. That's the official attendance. Yep. And uh, uh, I said, oh, I'll, I cut it in half. The media uh, blow things up a little bit. So I said 5,000. Anyway, we run out onto the ground... And they're all sitting around the banner line. We didn't know this. And uh, anyway, I said, I reckon 5,000 got in. So I'm running towards the boundary line in the first quarter. And I got pushed in the back by uh, Jimmy Clark, a great Carlton player that who, yep. uh, I always liked. And he actually lived up at Chuka with my grandkids later on. And uh, a voice said to me when I fell on the crowd, uh, what are you doing here? <laughs> and I said, oh, I know that voice. I looked around and I said to, uh, that was my brother. <laughs> Remember, 95,000 officially in the game. I follow my brother. And I said, what am I doing now? What are you bloody doing here? Because he was four years younger than me. Right. And the chap with him was a chap by the name of Pat Egan. And you wouldn't believe this, Mark, but uh, the assistant coach at Essendon is, is his grandson. Really? Yeah, and uh, that was my brother's best mate, Pat right. Egan. Now I've got uh, Matthew Egan yep. at, at, at Essen. now. He's coaching the seconds this year. He is. And uh, what a surprise. So we're, we're talking, we've sort of got on to footy very quickly here. We're talking the 1949 grand final. Uh, you blokes beat Carlton by 12-odd goals. But, Jack, we, I, I want to speak footy with you because it's a big part of your life. But before that... You're a young bloke growing up in Melbourne. You're in the depression. So, at what stage does school become not an option? What time? What, what age did you finish school? Well, I finished school late nineteen what nineteen thirty eight. So, what was thirteen or fourteen? Were you? Yeah, I was thirteen, and and they said, well, you know, I want to. I said I want to leave, but you couldn't leave until you were fourteen. Right. So they said, oh well, nobody will know. So I left school at thirteen to do what? Uh, and I didn't have a job, but I had to get out and get a job. And my first job was uh, $1.25 for 48 hours. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what the job was. Come on, but give me an idea. That's what I got. Give me an idea. $1.25. Now, right. I, I was a messenger for, for uh, uh, a barber. A barber? He used to go around and sell 
uh, stuff for your hair and right. things like that. Oh, brill cream or yeah, everything right. like that. Yeah, a dollar twenty five for forty eight hours. Forty eight hours. Gee, that's a long way to pay off that mortgage. Well, even even the, even the, when I when I as I grew up again, you know, I think by the time I I was an apprentice butcher, and by the time I I went into the army, I was probably only getting uh, one pound twenty five one. One pound, two and five, you so know, which is two, two bucks fifty. Two dollars twenty-five, right? For forty-eight hours, no overtime in those days. You mentioned joining the army. Before we get to that, you're talking. We're talking nine thirty-eight, and this will, this will be a great history lesson for me. But sitting down at school, to me, the Second World War was always nineteen thirty-nine to nineteen forty-five. So, as a fourteen or fifteen-year-old, can you cast your mind back, Jack and? Did you understand? Did the Australian people understand there was a war coming that was going to affect them or not? Yeah, well, I was listening to the radio when uh, the Prime Minister at the time, I just forget his name at, at the moment, but uh, he announced that Australia was at war. That was in 1939. So what did that mean to you as a, as uh, a 14-year-old in, in Melbourne? I was just worried about my brother-in-law, one of his sister's husbands, if he might have to go to war, you know, and uh, three years later I was called up. When I turned 18, so... Uh, so how does that process happen? You, you, you're an apprentice butcher at this stage? Yeah, well, I could have got out of it probably because I, I was only 18 and I was an apprentice, but I wanted to go in because all my mates who were in it at the moment, you know, a few months older than me, so I said I'd better go in as well. So, so I got you... a letter to go. Everybody at 18 got a letter to uh, go and report for a medical and everything like that. Do, do you remember going to that medical? Oh, like, yeah, so, yes, so it was what? at Royal Park... Uh, where the uh, Royal Children's Hospital is at the moment, right. and that, that's where the, the headquarter was for, for for joining the army, and and even when we come home, we had to go through there with with another examination to uh, get the, out of the army, you know. So what was going on in the war at this stage? Now I guess we're in the early forties. Do you even know the places? How are you finding out about what's happening in Germany and and happening in in Europe and and London at the time? Well, no, we, we, we got called up. We had a V number, just like a Victorian number, New South Wales, NS. And then when we got in and, and they were talking about sending us overseas, yep. which they couldn't do, so we joined the Army and we got a VX number. Right. My number was uh, VX148416. I Still remember, remember that. It. Still know? remember it. Yeah, and uh, the, the first port of call... I went to was at Watsonia, the, the barracks are still there, right. just the other side of Heidelberg. Yep. And we learned about hand grenades and, and machine guns and mortar bombs and everything like that. What did you learn about them, Jack? Like, do, does well, a bloke sit I there and say... I never saw a, a machine gun or anything. You know, you'd sit out in the park at, at, at Watsonia and yep. they have instructors there telling you what, what, what it was and... And the, the Bren gun was the, the the gun I carried during the first part of the war in uh, in New Guinea. We we were dispatched to New Guinea, our battalion. So, at this stage, you're training at Watsonia, and, and you're with your mates. I guess you're making mates like like any Aussie. Didn't bloke know does. anybody when went into the army. So, what did you, what made you want to join? Jack, what made you want to go on? Was it an adventure, or was it to help your country, or was it to be with your mates, or is it all of that? I really don't know, to be honest. I really don't know. But just because of my weight, some were in the Navy, some were in the Air Force. And I said, well, when the letter comes, well, well I just went up and passed the physical and everything like that. So tell, then I like, got notification. I didn't say no, I wouldn't go in. And then I got notification. I had to be at the Watsonia at a certain time. And uh, that, that's how it started. You report, you, you, you tell your parents, your, your mum at this stage? Yeah, well, my dad had died about... Ten months previously, right, and I, uh, well, she just realised when I got the letter that I'd have to have to go into the army, and I didn't know that I could have got out of it anyway because I was an apprentice. But she, she would have lived through the First World War, so she would have understood. Ah, uh, yes, war? yes. My father didn't go to the First World War. They had a couple of young kids at the time, but my eldest sister and that. Did she? So, did, but did she say for someone that lived through one of these, Jack? Did she say to you, Jack, this is? You do no, this or don't do this or just up to you? Son. No, she didn't say much at all, really. But right. uh, uh, when I think back, I was, I was probably pretty selfish for not trying to get, not to get out, you know. Uh, you know, tell them I was an apprentice butcher and things like that. But I just wanted to go in. <laughs> it's one of those things when you're in, you wanted to get out. <laughs> <laughs> but once you're in, it's a bit late. Yeah, it was too late. So, so you did 
you continued your training in Victoria? No, we went up to Canundra, just outside the Gold Coast. Right. It's about probably 15, 20 kilometres outside. There's all mountains and that. And we had an idea we might be going to the to the islands, you know, walking over all the mountains and yep. that. And uh, we, we used to do with 30-mile marches in those days. I said 30 miles. I said that I was interviewed the other day at the AFL and yep. I said 30 miles. I said, that's my language. I said, what's that, about 45 kilometres? It is. You know, it you is. Know. With your pack and... Yeah, uh, we used to do that every day pretty well. Right. And it's so... It's bizarre, Jack, because my I have no experience of war on my country being at a war that's close to us, which is what you're dealing with. So what was the general reason why you were going? What were your instructors or those above you saying, we're going to fight because of why? Never told us anything. Right. We didn't know anything and, and it was just like a job, you know. They're the boss. You just, just do what you're told. So, so you finish your training, you're doing as you're told, and then what yeah, happens? Yeah, we went there? to Townsville to, to uh, uh, get on the ship to go over. To, we didn't know where. So you didn't, well, you jumped no, on the boat, you yeah, didn't know where you're going. we got on the ship and we didn't wow. know where we were going. And uh, after about three and a half days, I think, we had a, uh, a Navy vessel called a Corvette that was zigzagging in front of us to uh, keep the uh, j- uh, Japanese... Submarines away, naturally. Yep. And we never struck any. And when we pulled in, we pulled into. Uh, they told us that it was Port Moresby in Papua New Guinea. And uh, we looked across at the, the very cloudy day and the mountains. You couldn't see the tops of the mountains. And we said, one of the chaps said, Now I know why we did all that marching and all the yeah, training right. in the hills. So, so we're talking 1943. It's, yeah. It's. I'll explain to you how far removed this is from, from my life. I've been to Papua New Guinea three times um, on surf trips, taking my dad up there and mates up there. And to me, it's this amazing tropical location with perfect waves. And th- there is history around the place. There's You can dive on, on wrecks of bombers and ships up at a place called Kaviang way out in the east. I know it as a, as a place of... Pumping surf, and I know that sounds wrong talking to you. What do you know Papua New Guinea as? Before you get into what happened there, I know it as a as a perfect wave. What do you know Papua New Guinea as? Hills, hills, mountains, just hundreds of them. Yeah, well, we never had any tanks with us up in New Guinea because they they couldn't uh, go over the terrain of the mountains and that. You know, it wasn't until we went to Bougainville that we I ever saw a tank. Right. You know, so uh, no, it was it was very very mountainous over there in New Guinea, and as I said, it, it's probably silly to say, but it was just like a job. You'd get up in the morning and you'd go out in patrol. But before you did that, before you went out on your p- patrol, you're talking about a corvette and making sure there was no Japanese yep. subs there. Yep. Did you understand the risks? No, not really. It, it, it seems people often talk to my kids and that about it. They said, well, you must have been worried. I said, well, what could you do? We were down the hull of the ship and it was about 90-degree heat down there and there were three-tier bunks about 18 inches wide and the bottom one was only about six inches off the ground of the, the, the ship. You could hear the waves on the side of the, uh, the ship splashing up against it when it, was, when it got a bit rough. But no, it's probably people say, no, you, you must have known. And I said, no, it was a job. Right. It was you just know? a job. The chaps would die alongside you, in front of you, behind you, and with the mortar bombers coming over, and you couldn't hide from them. They'd have spotters up trees, you know, for the mortar bombs, and they'd probably land 50 yards behind you, and then they'd say, we assume, they'd say, drop it back 50 yards. And then it dropped in, in amongst us, you know. We had a lot killed in a lot of those raids. That's not a job then, though. Well, it, it still was because you, you didn't even think about it. You got up every morning. You didn't know whether you're going to be still alive by the end of the day. What could you do? I know people well, I don't know. can't I, understand that. No, I, I have no, I have no understanding. You couldn't of what be you're frightened saying. because you had to look after. You. I had to look after you, for instance, and I had to look after that bloke there. You know. So you didn't feel fear? No, nah, no. Nah. Never felt fear at all. Did it make you 
Think about your life. You're only a young man. You're only you're like 21, 22. Did you? Did I, was only, I, I was only 19 when we first went to New uh, Guinea. So as a 19-year-old, did you view your life any differently when at the end of the day some of your mates weren't coming home from work, as you call it? Uh, well, no, it's very, very hard to understand what I'm talking about yeah. probably. but it is. You, you never had fear. You couldn't have it because you had to look after one another. So you, you arrive in Papua New Guinea. We're backtracking a bit here. And then what, what's the plan? You're trying to stop the Japanese taking well, over? Well, the plan was getting off the ship. They had rope ladders that you had to get over the rope. Yep. And there was a lot of barges waiting for us to take it to shore. And you, you'd climb down the steps, somewhere down steps, somewhere down the rope ladders. And uh, you'd get in the barges and they'd all go towards the beach, you know, 20 or 30 barges. Yep. And they dropped the front of the barge, and you you might have seen it on television, war pictures of that. You dropped the front of the, and you had to charge up the beach into the jungle. We were lucky; we, there was no Japanese there waiting for us, yep. so we got onto the on the beach without anybody getting killed. And uh, and then we f- reformed together, and and then they had a base there that we we camp at, and, and we went from there. And then from then on, you'd go up on patrols with. Uh, Say nine people. Yep. Uh, a, a lieutenant, a sergeant, a corporal, and a lance corporal, and about five others. And they'd go out on control. If you ever ran into a, a unit of Japanese that was, say, a platoon, you wouldn't attack them because you were too. You'd go back and report to base. Right. And then you'd go back in the afternoon or the next day or something like that. And so the entirety of your time there was spent in Port Moresby, going out from Port Moresby and coming back? Oh, no, we, 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 we didn't know, we didn't know. No, right. you just kept marching up the island, uh, up the hills, up the mountains, I'm sorry. So how, how far up the mountains are we going Oh, well, you, just mountain after mountain. Right. So and you just, you, you know, they'd have the signals there and tell us where the Japanese were because yep. they could tape into them and, and then the same of us probably. They could what? They could listen in to us. Right. The same as them, probably. They'd, you know, you, uh, the last patrol I did up in Bougainville when I went to when we went to Bougainville later on, we had three three in, on the patrol. That's how low we were getting as far as soldiers go, fighting soldiers. There's about a thousand in in a in a battalion, yep. but there's about five hundred fighting soldiers. The rest is. Mortar, mortar platoons, signals and pioneers to get us over rivers and everything like that. And, and the, uh, the colonels and that planning the war, you know, and tell them what we've got to do. So are you on the Kokoda track at this no, point? No, no, I was too young, thank God. I right. wouldn't be here today probably. Yeah. They lost numerous amount of people up there. So uh, I don't know. It's hard to ask these questions, Jack. You're incredibly open about it and you seem very blasé about it. Can you... Can you take me into what happens when, when you see the enemy, when you see the Japanese? Do, like, uh, all my questions are ignorant questions because yeah. I have no understanding. No, well, as I said, even we, we were we looked like if we were gone at one stage. Yeah, that's the first time I saw a, a tank, and that was behind us. If that wasn't there, we wouldn't be. I wouldn't be here today. But because the, this is in Bougainville, when we went to Bougainville, because terrain in Bougainville is more flat. Right. There's few hills, but no great big mountains like New Guinea. Right. You know, and and uh, we would have been gone. They, they were within 10 yards of us. And uh, we, you just kept shooting, you know. That was the only time that we were told to fix bonus. And just as they told us that, there wasn't many of us in that, that uh, it was only one platoon, not the whole battalion. Yep. And there was people behind, uh, the, the tank turned up behind us and, and they just, you know, mowed them down, unfortunately, you know. I often think of the Japanese, like, they had parents, they had a mother and father, probably had a wife and a couple of kids at home and here we are, both of us, shooting one another. It's just not real. Did you think of that at the time? How did you view No, the- I did, we didn't think of it at the time because either you or them. Or how did you view them at the time? Just as the enemy? Or- yeah, just as just the enemy. Did we- you hate them? No, well, I didn't. I, I never have, you know, because uh, we've got enough problems in our own country at the moment with yep. with people throwing young babies off... We do, Jack. ...the bridges and mm. driving into big ponds and drowning them and husbands killing wives and 
vice versa. And you've got to get your own backyard in order before you start criticising other countries, I reckon. So you're there and, as you said, you just keep shooting and you've got a mate beside you, I guess, you've got to know pretty well and he gets shot. Yeah. So... Yeah, well, they, they were strangers, but then they become real mates. So and we have, lost 91 killed and 197 wounded. Of your... Of our battalion, but we was nowhere near the, uh, the most that, like other battalions, some lost two and 300, you know, uh, killed, that is. But we were lucky in one way, but one's too many, little alone yeah. 91. So what happens when you get home at the end of your day's work, as, as, as you yeah. call it, and one of your mates that you met and you did training with or that you met along the way or that you're on the boat with, he's not back there with you that night. That's right. And uh, when we did come back after losing somebody on a patrol, you'd come back and you'd clear an area about 30 metres and put a trip wire around the the perimeter and put a hand grenade in between two sticks and then if the Japanese come, they'd trip over that and they'd alert us and we'd be ready for it when they came in. That's how he, because it's pitch black and you see the stumps, you look out there and there's no big trees and there's only stumps you, and you reckon that that stuff's moved, it might be a Japanese, but they would have tripped the, the uh, trip wire and the hang raid when it went boom, you know, we'd know they were on the way. Can you sleep in that situation? Well, you had two. We used to dig a, a, a trench, and uh, two of you in the trench, and you dig down three feet, and then about a foot wide, just enough for you to get in, or eight inches wide, and then you dig under halfway down, and that's where the, you'd be two hours on, you looking out, yep. and then the other bloke was asleep, or I was asleep, and after two hours, you'd wake him up. You'd go down underneath and he'd, he'd come up. <sighs> Did you but s- no, I, I can honestly say we never had fear, or I didn't, because he had, he had no time to think about it anyway. You had to keep going. You couldn't, you couldn't pull out, as the saying goes, because all your mates are with you. So if I put it to you that that and doing that is heroic... How do you look at the word heroic or, or hero? Never even thought about it, no. And now, looking back? No, the only, the only thing I, I like now is when I went marching, you know. Well, I'm the only one that's marched for the last seven years with my battalion. I'm the leader now, yep. even though I was only a little Lance Corporal. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, it, it, it's sad to think that there might be a few more still alive but they can't march or they you can't do this and they can't do that. And a lot of the wounded that we had, but one of the other battalions have, have, have lost twice as many mm. as us, you know, so that, that's right. It's very, very sad. Did, did you see things, Jack, you see other blokes do it, that you look back and think that was heroic, that saved some or that helped their mate or, like I say... No, we never ever thought, never right. ever thought it was about... Just, just doing what we had to do at work. Yeah, that's right, exactly. And I know it sounds... It's bloody extraordinary, mate, when you talk about it It is, like but that. you couldn't afford to be sorrowful. Yeah. You know, what, 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 what are you doing? I always say that worry about the things you can handle, don't worry about things that you can't handle. So that, that was one of those... Positions that I was, we were in. Did you lose All much weight? What'd you eat up there? What like? What do you? What's? Uh, it, 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 you packed down at the end of the night and you open your pack. What do you pull? Oh out? yeah, well you're always tired, but and uh, you lay you just lay down with your clothes on. The one thing you'd never take off in the army up the islands is your boots. Right. Because if you if you lost your boots and or, or took them off for a rest and they started to attack, you didn't have time to put them on. You never get anywhere without your boots. That, that was one of my... It sounds silly, I know, but... Because you couldn't walk on the ground. There was spikes and, you know, undergrowth everywhere with no sh- no boots on and the army boots, they were heavy, but by they, were, they, were, they saved a lot of people. And hot and wet up there, just yeah, hot Oh, hot. Wet. The humidity in that, it's unbelievable. So are there meals? It's stuck in my head. Are there meals that stick in your mind? Do you get out of a tin or is there things that you thought at the end of the war, geez, I'm never going to eat that again? Uh, well, I can always remember uh, baked beans we used to have a lot of. <laughs> right. Because they were, they were safe for us. Yep. And when I got home, my mother said, 
I, I, I was able to get a can of baked beans for you, Jack. And and I didn't say anything, I ate them, but I said, oh, I don't think I like them as much as I used to. <laughs> so how long were you up there? How long were you up I was 10 months in uh, New Guinea and yep. 12 months in Bougainville. Did you lose much weight in your time up there? Did you get sick? No, no, I, I was pretty thin when I went in. I was well under 13 stone. I'm just under 6 foot 1. Yep. And uh, I haven't changed much as far as weight and everything. I played in probably a few kilos more than what I am at the moment. D- did you get a, a feeling at any stage that you were winning or that you were losing? Never knew. The, the thing I always laugh about is, uh, and the battalion, this is Cameron's knoll, and that was one of our captains. Right. Or it was a, was a little hill. Right. We've won that. Seems stupid. Yeah. So what? You know, like, we we won this hill, we won that hill, but we were forcing them back to the end of the island. Yep. That was in Bougainville. That was uh, a hundred oh, hundred twenty mile long and five uh, nine mil, uh, mile wide. That's about fifteen kilometres wide. And, uh, what a hundred and fifty. Something like that long, and uh, we had them down there as we thought, but it started raining in in June, and it never stopped, and we couldn't cross the river to get at them. Right. And uh, by that time, we were ready to go over. They dropped the atomic bomb, and uh, we didn't we didn't have to get across the river, but we didn't know how many. They reckoned there was a lot waiting for us. So about 1975, we got a, a, a letter from the battalion. Yeah. Uh, what do they call it? The uh, that you could give it out after 30 years. Oh, freedom information. Freedom of information. That's the word I was looking for. And they say there was 18,000 Japanese on the other side of the river. Oh, I'm bloody glad. And that we had about up. a thousand. Well, I'm glad that river stayed up where it did. Then, and and, and I, I always hated them dropping the atomic bomb. But then again, I wouldn't be here if, if we had been able to cross the river with 18,000 Japanese waiting for it. So how do you... And I've, I've got that in black and white. It's, it's not, a, not a thing I've thought up. Yeah. We got that about... Around about 1975, I think. What's that? That's 45. Yeah, about it 30 is. years after the war. And we, we got... A, might have been 79 or something like that. We got a letter everybody that was still alive... We got a letter from the battalion telling us how much of a predicament we were in would have been in. So you're in Bougainville. How do you find out that they've dropped uh, the? Oh, first by or the, the second? wireless as they had, you know. Right. They, they had and right. do you do you remember thinking, well, that's going to be the end of this? Or yeah, well, we thought so because uh, I was playing cards in a cookhouse. It wasn't a cookhouse. It was only a tarpaulin you know, over where the, the cooks you and. Uh, there were stray Japanese. They had they had an aeroplane going over with Japanese surrender underneath it, you know, dropping a quarter of a million, 250,000 leaflets, saying that the Japanese the war was over. Right. But the Japanese, like we, wouldn't have believed it unless it come officially. Right. And, uh, and they attacked us where we were, our A company. And I was playing, and the rifle was round there and everything like that in my tent. And uh, my tent got blown away, and a chap that was, was we had a two-man tent, and he was in there, but he was below the ground. We used to dig down about 18 inches, and had our bed. So if if any shrapnel or that came from the mortar bomb, yep. it'd go over the top of us. Right. Uh, so and, he slipped uh, in a hole. Yeah, yeah. He was he wasn't sleeping, but he was in it, you yep. know, laying on his bed having a rest because the war was over. Yep. And that was two days after the war finished. Do you, do you remember the you remember when it's over and you, you know it's over is is it is it relief or as you say that's the end yeah. of the job yeah that, yeah can you remember it was when relief you, it was relief can you remember that moment when you thought right I, I'm going to survive this I'm yeah. going to get out of this yeah we definitely yeah take us to that time but then then when we got attacked we had to right. have our have our guns and everything like the war hadn't finished because there was still raiding raiding parties around. But even in New Guinea, they were still finding Japanese in, in the 60s, so still, still living on, you know, off the land. 
was it elation, Jack, or was it relief, or was it a bit of everything when you thought that? Bit of everything, I think, Mark. I think it was relief, you know, that they were going home. And then they wanted us to, uh, uh, when it was over, you know, a month or so, and they wanted to, uh, we couldn't get a ship to go home, come home. And uh, they, they wanted an occupational force to go to Japan, but you had to be six foot. So I believe, this is just hearsay, and right. uh, they asked me, I said, no thanks, I'm going home. Yeah, fair enough too. <laughs> but a lot did go. We, we That's why there was a lot of Australian men married Japanese girls. Right. Yeah. So they went over to Japan as the occupational force. They went up for the occupational force to, to, to try and get them, that was a silly part about it, I thought, to get them back on their feet. And, you know, a yeah. month before that, we were killing one another. It doesn't make much sense, does it? No, it doesn't make any sense at all. We, we, we read a lot now, Jack, about, I guess, the effects of war, and there, there's words for it that I have no understanding of, like post-traumatic stress disorder and words like that where people come back from a combat zone and it stays with them f- for a long time. I don't want to pry into your personal life, but did you have problems No, nah, never had any war? problems at all, but a few of our blokes did. They used to call it up there. Uh, oh, I forget the name of it now. Uh, no, I've lost. I, I, right. I've lost my thought. So blokes did struggle with what? I guess if you've seen people. Oh yeah, they, or... some of them used to sit on the edge of the of the beach and look for a ship to come to pick us up, and they'd just go past and they'd come back and say, "No, that's not for us." You know, they were worried. Oh, they they a few of the older ones had left families at home. You know and. Uh, we, when we come back from New Guinea, we only had two weeks leave before we went back up to Queensland and did more training at the Athen Tablelands, actually. Right. Right up there. Then we came back to Townsville and on a ship. We didn't know where we were going again. And we went to Bougainville. We were on there for that 12 months. So when you see people killed, the effect that that will have, but also I guess the other side of war is having to kill people, Jack. Yeah, well, you know, some of our blokes... Uh, the sad part about it, it comes here around about Anzac Day every year. Yeah, I, I'd be silly if I said I'd think about it all the time. It's, when Anzac Day comes, you think about the chap that got killed with a, a mortar bomb right in, in a uh, trench, yeah. you know, five yards away, and he was cut in half, you know. And you, you think of those things now, you know, what his family is thinking today and everything like that. There would only be his, his siblings, but it wouldn't be his mother and father, of course. Yeah. They're, they're, they're well, well, because my mother would be, be about 130 now, so <laughs> she wouldn't be worried about me now, naturally. The, the bit of reading I did, um, and thanks for being so so honest, as I say, it's a really... Um, it's not difficult to ask about. It's difficult to understand, you know what I mean, from where I, I sit in yep. my privileged life due to the fact of what you went and did. Um, the privileged people like me, it's, it's really hard to understand... Well, nowadays, Mark, the uh, the thing that I notice in the march, yep. well done, boys, thanks very much, boys, is, is coming out a lot more, right. especially in younger people. Okay. You know, and there's a terrible lot of young people with babies in their pram, wavered and well done, boys, well done, chaps. You know, they've got their own way of saying thank you. And you feel a bit proud that, you know, you did help. To keep us now, what we've got 23 million in Australia at the moment. Yep. When I went to war, there was just under four, five million, I think. Do you think if you hadn't gone, the occupying forces, the, the Japanese forces, would have found their way to Australia? Do you, do you look back? Well, and think, well, when you look at it, they had uh, Japanese submarines coming into Sydney Harbour, so yeah. you, you wouldn't know where they were really. But up in Darwin, that they never got the credit what they did up there. I was up there a few years ago and I went to the war cemetery naturally and I yep. was talking to the couple of the chaps that were guarding them. There was a terrible lot of airmen there. Mm. You know, and I thought, oh, what, how were they, uh, where did they die? They wouldn't have died here. They said, yes, they did. The planes they were flying were like matchboxes that, and when they tried to land and they'd been shot at on the way home, they'd just explode as they were landing. And I couldn't get over how many Air Force men was in that... A lot of, lot of Army men too, and, and uh, I couldn't believe it. I still think about it. I was up there about probably about 
12 years ago. Went to a wedding up there and mm. I said, I'll go to the cemetery. So I went and had a look and the airmen that were buried up there was unbelievable. They wasn't fighting on the ground, but they were fighting in the air. They were, and then that, that, when they come into land doing their jobs, thinking it's, they all got, we're, we're safe back and the planes would just crash. Probably had a wheel shot off or something like that. They didn't have retracting wheels, yep. probably in those days. So now we're at the sort of tail end of 1945 and you can't get home. I, I did a bit of reading about it. You're, you're stuck in Papua yeah, New we, Guinea for a while? We, we could, because a lot of ships had been sunk. Right. And we had to wait your turn and we were there for four months. In? In Bougainville. Right. Waiting. It was three days under four months. It was ended on the 15th of August. And I got home three days before, no, 12th of de- December, I got yeah. home. And they built a football ground in Bougainville because it was flatter. You couldn't have done it in New Guinea. Yeah. And uh, they made the football ground. They played NRL and they played Australian rules. They had a- athletic carnivals and they, they, they built a little swimming pool, you know, with the bulldozers and pumped the, <laughs> the water out of a creek into it. <laughs> And, well, there was nothing else to do. There's no shops there. There was nothing. Time for a very, very short break from Jack as we preview next Thursday's episode of the Howie Games. It'll be coming up to Bathurst weekend, Australia's biggest motorsport event, so we are stoked to bring you two for the price of one. A man that has won the famed race six times, Larry Perkins, and a man who this year is hoping to win it for the very first time, Larry's son, Jack. A young fellow who was told ten years ago he would never be able to race cars again. Went to my eye doctor and said, hey, I need some new glasses real quick because I'm racing this weekend. Told him all that stuff and he said, you've got diabetes. And that didn't mean much to me at the time. But uh, later that night I was admitted into hospital and you know, I got told then that I had diabetes and there was injections and things. It didn't mean much at the time either. And then I don't know whether it was dad or, or me or whatever, but the, the diagnosing doctor at the time knew who we were and we were involved in car racing. He just said... Yeah, yeah, you won't be able to race cars again. Full stop. And, yeah, full stop. That's Larry and Jack Perkins coming up next Thursday on the Howie Games. Please subscribe so you don't miss it. Time to go back to Jack Jones. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of legends that float around your life, Jack, um, for various reasons, and people will begin to understand that as we continue this conversation. But there, there is a legend that says that you were playing footy in Bougainville and word got back to Victoria where, for those that aren't aware, it was then the Victorian Football League, which we now call Aussie Rules. Legend is that word got back from Bougainville to Melbourne that there was this bloke, Jack Jones, who could play footy and he could play it pretty well. Well, that's where I was recruited from, actually. So uh, you're, you're Brooke? I got, when I got home and talked to my mother, I you know, hadn't seen her for a long time. Can, can you take me to that moment, Jack? You, you walked in the door and you see your mum? Yeah, she was halfway up the street, our street. She saw somebody turn the corner because the lot, the get the lights around the 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 electric light poles in the street were still covered. Right, they hadn't taken them all down. They had the, the lights. They always shone down to the ground, and like they are today, you can see thirty yards from one light to another. You know. Anyway, we got in, we started talking, and then when we talked for hours, you know, and she said, "There's three letters there for you from football clubs." I said, what right to me? I never had a clue. It was one from Williamstown. Yep. One from Brunswick. Yep. And one from Essendon. Right. I went to Williamstown first because I buried for Williamstown. My father was born in Williamstown. So they're playing in the VFA? VFA Association. Right. Yep. And uh, Ron Todd, the great Collingwood uh, full forward that, that went there, was never allowed to come back to play league football because I think he got two or three pound a goal. Right. Which was a fortune in those days. <laughs> My word. And he didn't want to talk to me. I went over to Brunswick and a chap by the name of Ron Baggett, that he was in the army, but he, he got back like me and he, he was made coach of Brunswick and uh, he played in the 39, 40 and 41 premierships for Melbourne before he went into the army. He didn't want to talk to me. So I said, well, I'll have to go up to Western. And when I read the letter, I nearly went through the ceiling at home because Dick Reynolds was my idol. You know, yep. I saw him play his first game and everybody loved Dick, as I said yep. before. And uh, I went up there and played in the practice matches and went pretty well. And and I got on the list. There was only two got on the list out of 100 that was trying to get on the list. And uh, and that's how it happened. That's how I happened to play with Essen. And I... Uh, 
I played eight games, first eight games. What the year? The first game at Essendon. 1946. So this is three months back from home from war. Yeah. Right. And uh, I I got malaria. And malaria that I didn't get in in New Guinea or Bougainville, which a lot of my mates did. Right. And I got malaria and I... So I was, it had sat in your system, had it? It, it had sat in your system, the malaria. Yeah, yeah, right. must okay. have been. Yep. And, and I lost the stadium weight and I couldn't play for two weeks. And I, luckily I, I got straight back into the side and then I played 133 games straight before I missed a game and uh, played the premierships and everything and it was great. Now, Jack, we see in modern footy, you know, uh, out ankle, out knee, out hand. You don't see out malaria too regularly in footy. There's not many blokes that have missed games of VFL footy due to malaria, I wouldn't well, have thought. Well, there's a chap in the league I read in the paper this week, I think it was, or, or last week. He's got uh, yellow jaundice. Yeah. Yeah, I read well, that too. similar to malaria. Yeah. I had that when I was about 10. Right, right. <laughs> the funny thing, you know, I got malaria eight... Well, I got back in December and I training and... I think it was uh, a late May that I, that I, I uh, and I, I was sick as a dog in bed, you know, and I saw this bloke come in and I didn't know him. And mother said, he's a doctor and he was from Veteran Affairs and he, they gave me all tablets and everything like that and, uh, and I took them and I was right to play in two weeks. Two weeks? Yeah, I can't believe it, you know. Two weeks gospel, that's all I lost two games. And even for them to put me back in. Anyway, uh, I've never had a chance, thank God. It's a, yeah, it's, it's a horrible thing. Mm. I had a touch of malaria in my Did time. Did you? Yeah, that I got in uh, a little place called Malawi, a little Lake Malawi in, in Africa, and I wasn't playing footy in two weeks' it's time. It's pretty prevalent now, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Cats, yeah, it is in, in South Africa yeah. at the moment. And, yeah. And uh, in Central Africa, um, South America, they, they get a bit of that as well. But the mosquitoes are as big as uh, blowflies up and you're kidding. Yeah, well, that's what we reckon anyway. Yeah, they are. We used to have to take a, one tablet every day, adamant tablet every day. Right. And I never missed. So some of the other blokes that, that got them up there, they might have been missing and Didn't not work. worried about taking them. Didn't work for you though, did it, the old tablet? Well, it up... did for a while. For well, about, yeah, for a while. Oh, well, I was up there 22 months in the island. Right. And, and I never had it. And then, what, three months later... The, yeah, when I'm back, I've got the dreaded thing. Sat in your system. So you, you, you signed up then as a, a professional? Were you called a professional football? You're playing, you're playing football oh, for a wage? No, I, I, I had to play with... I had to go up and play with Essendon anyway. Yep. But I would have never have gone up there. I didn't think I was good enough to play in the seconds even. But you're getting paid to play when you're playing senior footy at Essendon? Oh, yeah, three pounds. Three pounds. 50 cents tax. 50 cents tax. Yeah. Three pounds. So what What were you... If you were uh, a butcher at that stage, what would you have been making? Six pounds six. Six pounds six a week? Yep. So you got... 48 hours. So you got... Right, so you got half your wage, again, playing yep. footy. Oh, yeah. So it was a, a good thing. Money. It was a good thing. Yeah. Right, okay. But if you didn't play, you didn't get paid in those days. Right, right. Now they've got a contract, especially the good players. If they're out <laughs> easy, they yeah. still get paid. So you're... 700,000 a year now. No wonder you. No wonder you came back from two weeks of malaria to get back out on the ground. Jack. Oh well, I was up to there to put me back in, though, Mark. <laughs> now it was an extraordinary time for the for the footy club. You, you played from, uh, and I was actually I was looking at this yesterday, and I was trying to get all the facts and figures in my head. You were playing from uh, ninety six. Uh, sorry, nineteen forty six. Uh, you beat Melbourne by sixty three points. Forty seven in the grand final. You lost to Carlton by a point. Forty eight. There was a draw. Where you both seven twenty seven. We'll get to that one. Then the next year, forty nine, you beat Carlton. In fifty, you beat Essendon by thirty eight, and in fifty one, you lost to Geelong by eleven. North Melbourne, yeah, North Melbourne by thirty eight. So from nineteen forty six to nineteen fifty one, there was six grand finals, but you actually would have played in seven because there was a draw. Yeah, well, we played Geelong in fifty one. Yeah, and they beat us by eleven points, but John Coleman was rubbed out. For four weeks, and he didn't play in any of the finals. Right. The last game against Carlton at Princess Park. Right. So he was out. And what did he do? What did he do? He this is 1951. A bloke hit him, but he hit him back. Did you see it? He got four weeks, yeah. yeah. And he deserved I his four weeks? In front of him. 
Oh, you tap me on the cheek, he had four weeks in those days. Right. That Richmond captain, well, I forget his name. He got put out of a grand final. He just slapped him on the face as if you slapped your yeah, little kid. Well, let's try and do this with some form of um, uh, timeline, Jack. So you play in your first grand final. Uh, you beat Melbourne by 63 points. I reckon you were a reserve then in 1946. Yeah, I, yeah, I came out in the last quarter. So what's it like running out? In the mid-1940s on grand final day. Tell me about the build-up to, to a grand final because you know what it's like now. It's oh, just it pretty, out of control. It was pretty big. Was it? We, we used to have two or 3,000 at training the last before the grand final. Yep. And, uh, you know, with the population, that was a lot. Because everybody in Essendon buried for Essendon. Yep. Pretty much in those right. days. And, and, and same with Footscray and... Collingwood and everything like that. And you were playing with some giants, of, oh, not just of Essendon, I was there of the at game. the right time, Mark. Some, some of those Dick guys Reynolds, you played Bill with. Bill Hutchison, yeah. five Brownlow medals in those two. <laughs> but the thing about it was, in 1951, when Coleman was out, we got beat by 11 points by Ge- uh, Geelong. Yep. We had a number, ruck, number one ruckman out, John Gill. Right. He, there was no mobile phones in those days and he couldn't get in touch with anybody at the club, but he was... Very, very sick in bed with a bad flu. Right. So he didn't play. So that's why Dick Reynolds was not playing coach. He had to come and sit on the bench because the seconds were playing in the grand final. Right. And none of them would come off and they didn't find out the game was nearly over. So they weren't going to take the risk of playing one of those players that had already played a game. Yep. And so Dick come and sat on the bench and he came on in the last 10 minutes. So 1946, as you said, you came in the last quarter. You win your first premiership as, as a professional lesson of football by yep. 63 points. What happens that night? Because you're a man, and this is why you've lived to 91. I don't reckon talking to you before, I don't reckon you've had a beer in your life, had you? No, not really. So you say you haven't really had a beer. So how, how does the 1946 Essendon Premiership side celebrate being the best team in the state? Yeah, we didn't go to a big uh, motel and that. No, it wasn't around in those days. So we had it at, at the club. Right. In the training rooms. Right. And we were there till 3 o'clock in the morning and that's how we celebrated. And, was and it... I had a lemon squash. A lemon squash. Yeah. <laughs> and is it front page news the next day? And what was the paper of the time? Oh, Jack? yeah. Oh, yeah. There was, a, there was only one writer in every... There's Hector Lacey, the Sporting Globe, and right. uh, Brown from the Herald Sun. Right. And I forget who was the Argus and the Age, but right. the Argus, you, well, you, re, you wouldn't remember the Argus. No. You heard about it probably. But so this is splashed across the front page. Oh, the yeah. Bombers win grand final, yeah. et cetera, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. The next year, Jack. Well, we were in front all day long. So, so we're taking people here that wouldn't be aware. We're going to 1947. Yeah, we're um, playing, you're playing Carlton. Carlton. Arch rivals. Yeah. Oh, not really in those days. Right. They were a great club, great team. Yep. That's what I thought. Right. And I can't get over what, what the two think about one another at the moment. Mm. That's got nothing to do with me, but it's not in my mind anyway. But uh, we're in front all day long, 50, 15 seconds to go. A bloke kicked a goal from the half-forward flat over his shoulder. Only kicking out all day, really. He might have had three or four. Yep. And they bounced the ball and the siren went. So you lost by a point. Lost by a point. 1948. Kicked 727 to 10-9. 7 Were you part of the 27? Yes. I won't tell you how many points. Did you I've spray never, a few, Jack, or I, not? I never ever said I'll never said it, and I'm not saying it now. <laughs> okay, we'll keep that under the hat. Our full forward kick 113. 113. Yeah. Who was that? No, I'm not going to name okay, him. Okay, okay. Sorry. 113. No, don't be he, sorry. He's gone, but I, I, no, he was a great player. He, he finished up... Uh, fall back for Essen. More of Jack Jones in a moment. If you missed last week's episode of the Howie Games, oh, you missed an episode with one of the greats of Australian sports commentary, Dennis Cometti. If I'm watching a if I'm watching a replay and I see something happen, uh, it will happen again in another game down the track okay. somewhere. But when you see it happen, you suddenly do think of something you could could say. You know, like that would cover that reasonably well and and make someone maybe occasionally smile. So. Uh, do you write it down? Sometimes you do. Yeah. But it's not necessarily to be used next week or the game after that or whatever. It's the next time you see what you just saw. Right. And because you've seen enough football and I've seen enough football, you can almost sense when some of these things are coming. So so you just, you know, and then hopefully uh, you remember it well enough. 
Good luck to the guru, Dennis Cometti, who is calling his last AFL grand final this weekend. Time to go back to Jack Jones. But before we get to 49, so you've lost one grand final by a point. You've you've drawn another one where you've kicked 727. You've got belted by Melbourne next week. Do you recall the feeling of the siren when you've got done by a point or when you drew it? Yeah, we just lay down on the floor in the, in the, in the rooms and... Didn't talk, didn't say anything. We didn't. Oh, well, I didn't anyway. Was it? Was it? Was it a devastation that we see today, oh, or well, as a matter of fact? I just, I just wonder from where you've come from and what you've seen up there in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. I, I just wonder how that affects the way you look at your life and then on moving forward. No, I, I was disappointed. We had to go to work on the Monday. We we never had a bad Monday. We had, I had to start work at five o'clock on the Monday morning at the butchers. Yeah, right. And and. Uh, to get beat by a point, yeah. and, uh, you know, and then the next year, well, that 48 grand final, we uh, we played Melbourne two home and away games. We beat them easily every time. Yep. Got to the second semi-final, we beat them again easily. The grand final we got into, and, as you know, and the only time they beat us in five contests was the <laughs> replay of the grand final. So we threw that one away. Yeah. The next week, next year, 49, we won by 73 points, I think, or 63. And then the that next w- year we beat uh, North Melbourne by 36 points, I think. You did. And the next year we played Geelong and, and got they beat us by 11 points. And that was and when you were talking Smith about... killed us that day. That's when you're talking about Coleman was out. I reckon from the reading I did, uh, you beat Essendon by 73 points in 49. And yeah. Coleman might have kicked 100 that year. Yeah, we were running backwards to kick, kick it to him in the last because we we're so far in front. So he needed he needed six. He, he needed one more goal. He had five, and he needed six to bring up the ton. Yeah, and we anybody that would kick to the goal, we, we'd go crook at him. So we'd kick it backwards to Coleman <laughs> all the time, who, trying to kick it to him. Was he the best, Jack, or who was the best you saw or played with? Because you, as we said, you played the with the best Giants. player I played with. Yeah, Billy Hutchison. Billy Hutchison, who was the rover for the Bombers. Yeah, he, if he was playing today, he'd get be getting fifty touches Would every. He? he never stopped running. Well, there's this tape of the 1950 Grand Final. I don't know who your ruckman was, but he's banging it into Bob space. McCall. Right, great ruck. He's banging it into space, and your man, he's just he's just grabbing Billy everything Hutchison. out of the centre and just bombing it forward. Yeah. Well, there was another chap that played in. Six grand finals, and he was similar to Coleman, Bob McClure. He's a great ruckman. Right. And he fell in the gutter at Hawthorne during the season, and he never played again. That he was it. his knee. Right. Similar thing to – he never played football again, similar to Coleman. He was a great ruckman, Bluey McClure. So, so we sit here now um, – we've already been chatting for 55 minutes – can we, oh, do you mind if I have a bit more of your time? Is that okay? Oh, that's all right, yeah. Um, you sit here now as a three-time premiership player at the Essendon Footy Club, which is, you know, that's a, that's a much lauded thing. What, how, how do you look back on your footy days? What are your, what are your thoughts on being a, a, a premiership player and a player at Essendon and a revered figure now at the Essendon Footy Club? Luck. Is it? I was lucky to be there at the right time. You know, I often think, I often bring up when people ask me, and I, Bobby Shilton. One of the best players mm. I've seen play the game. Yeah. Played in one final, won three Brownlow medals, never played in the grand final. And there's dozens and dozens of blokes, hundred times better footballer than I was. And I, I had the luck of playing in three, grand, uh, three premierships and seven consecutive grand finals. How lucky can you be? It's extraordinary, isn't it? Oh, it is really when I think about it. I keep pitching myself. I, I, I... And now I can't be broken that record. No. No. Because of the draw. That's they, right. They've <laughs> just got rid of it, haven't they? Yeah, they got rid of it. Nobody can play in... No. Yeah. So, uh, well, well, they can if they win seven in a row. I'm not sure it's going to happen <laughs> now, mate. Not unless the Hawks keep going the way they are at the moment, Yeah, Jack. that's right. <laughs> Luck's an interesting... I guess in some ways you're lucky to even be there, mate. You were, you were unlucky to have to go and do what you did, but you were lucky to get out of there alive. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know... I was a real one-eyed Essence supporter and I, I, I can remember the thing I said to Hutchie. He only lived three streets from me. I never knew him. Right. I knew him as... He was another one of my idols playing for Essence. Anybody who played with Essence was, was an idol of mine, you mm. know, and I walked up to the station with him. We always used to go to the full, football by train, even the players. 
And uh, I said, you think we'll win today, Bill? I said, what a stupid... I often think of it now, what a stupid <laughs> question I asked him. The captain of the... Oh, no, you know, the champion player of the side, do you think we'll win today, Bill? <laughs> and I became a... He, he was one of my best mates. Right. Hutchie and Reynolds, even, you know, because <laughs> I, I, I actually... Uh, Carried the casket for for uh, Hutchie yep. and Leggy Gardner, another player with me. He was a better mate to him than me because I went up to Warby and lost con- contact with him for about ten years. You know, you, you you went up there and you went up there coaching and 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 living your life and uh, yeah, you, you, you're so you're 91 now. I want to ask you a couple of things that um, whether you can answer or not. You've, you've been married to Mary for how long? 68 years. 68 years. So what's the key, Jack? How do you stay with someone? Because when I picked you up today, you, as soon as I asked you about who you live with and you said your wife and your daughter and you mentioned that your wife was born on Christmas Day and yeah. you had a big smile on your face when you spoke about your wife, which that was the first thing that hit me when I picked you up today, how, you know, you just smiled when you talked about your wife. Yeah, and you've well, been with her for 68 years. Yeah, well, uh, she gave me 100%. She'd never been to a football match when I met her, never ever been to a a league game right. when I first met her. I'd, and the first time I took her out, I, went, I took her to the football. Did you? That was your first date? And that was her first time she'd ever been. That was the first. You old I, smoothie, I, you, Jack. Yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> no, she gave me 100% when I was playing with Essendon. She's not a football person. No. But she was so loyal to me, you know. And uh, and then and then when we went to Albury and I was, I, I was my co- captain and coach, that's why they got me from Essendon. Yeah. She gave me 120%. Right. Because, you know, it was uh, it was the two of us in the marriage, you know, and she used to cook the players' meals up there and everything like that, you know. bit like a lamb at... Uh, oh, yeah, up at Brisbane at the now. Brisbane line, yeah, yeah, his yeah. wife. But, yeah. Now, she was great. But she's got other... She's got plenty of other interests, but she still, still likes Essendon because of the youngest daughter because she's mad one-eyed Essendon supporter and... Uh, but she she doesn't go to the footy, you know. And, and she, well, she be I've been talking football at home for, for what for sixty eight years, you know. And uh, she gets a bit sick of it. Be fair to say we came here to Channel Ten today, so we didn't have to speak football in your home. Yeah, well, in front well, of me, probably. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I can understand that. She's I, got so she's I. got she's got so so many interests, you know, in in welfare and everything like that. So do do you. When you've been with someone for that long, do you, you must have just an innate understanding of them and yourselves as a couple. The one thing I'll always tell you, Mark, yeah. you, you gotta you gotta be prepared to know who's the boss in your house. Right, who's the boss in your house? My wife. Right. Well, that's good advice. That's good You'll advice. You'll never get anywhere unless you believe that. <laughs> you have your arguments, you know. No, that, that's not right, that's things like that. But no, she's been great and... and uh, We've got photos around uh, around the house, you know, from the grandkids. Yeah. The best nana in the world, you know. And right. She puts so much into the grandkids or anything like that, so I think she's getting a bit tired. Now we've got great-grandchildren, so... Well, there's a few of them. So do you, do you love her as much now as the day... Do you, can you remember the first time you told her you loved her or not? Yeah. Yeah, well, well I, I met her at the dance in Moody Ponds Town Hall. Yep. And uh, uh, we went out a few times, and then I had to go back to in that fortnight I had from New Guinea. Right. And we wrote to one another so backwards she, and forwards. She wrote to you from back and forth yeah. from Bougainville. Yeah, right. that's right. And uh, then when it come back, I, I got in touch with her, and uh, we started going together. And two years later, we were married. Yeah. And you love her as much now as you yeah. did then? Oh, of course. Yeah. Hey, Jack. Um, the time's flown. I, I really appreciate you sitting down and having a chat with me. I, I think the idea of the, the Howie games is trying to chat with people that have made an impression on me and I can still remember the first time I met you and I chatted to you. That was one answer, Dave Mark. Yeah, it was. It was. And I you know, I keep in touch and I always see it at the footy. And, yep. You know, obviously you know you through your granddaughter, Sarah, as well, who's doing a fine job on on Fox Sports now. But I always see in the rooms and I always go home and I tell Erica, my partner who's met you before, I saw Jack today and it, it, it just always makes me smile. So to, to find it a little bit about what you've been involved in and what you got up to, it's just a, it's a real treat, Jack. I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, and as did know about friendship, I, I really like you, Mark, and 
Thanks very much for asking me to come in to have the interview. I Thanks. hope it goes all right for you. It'll go fantastic. Okay. It was uh, it was an education. I hope everyone out there is listening to it um, get something out of it like I did, Jack. You're an absolute. Uh, well, you're a credit to everyone you've been involved in. As I said, I'm just proud to call you a mate and great to have a chat with you, mate. Good on you. Thanks, mate. Cheers, Jack. Thank you. Thank you so much to Jack Jones, a truly wonderful, wonderful man. Thanks also to Michael James. Without MJ, there would be no Howie Games. He gets us to air every week. Thank you also to you all out there for listening. Please subscribe. Rate us on iTunes. Tell everybody you know about it that you think may be interested in the Howie Games so we can get more people listening. We'll be back next Thursday, as always, with another episode. Until then, have a great week. Peace. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. Listener.